This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, who watches The Watchmen? Gatekeeping in speculative fiction. This week is brought to you by Opinions. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. It, it is. it is admittedly a Jules Has Opinions episode, but it's also a Jules Has Questions episode. Mm. And I think some of the times when I have a knee-jerk reaction to something I see around writing and publishing, what I actually want to know is, am I the only one seeing it that way, or do other people see it that way too? Mm. Um, and are we just sort of allowing certain people free reign without challenge? Um, on the other hand, it's very difficult not to get into uh, an argument about something like this because there are there are people who are very vocal on the internet who do not like to be contradicted or disagreed with in any way, shape, or form. So it's um, it can be a bit of a tricky one. So yeah. this is just kind of like I've noticed this. This is my opinion. This is Madeline's opinion. We may not agree with each other. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think? Because yeah. there's no real right answer here. Absolutely. And we'd also like to put forward that, you know, we are, the arguments that we're going to be making and the things that we're going to be saying are based on, as I said, our own opinion, but our own experiences and things like that. We are always open to alternative points of view um, and to being educated about things that perhaps we've misunderstood. So uh, please don't take this as a, right, we've, <laughs> we're making a fort and we're going to die on this hill kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, we're just going to put forward some ideas. Yeah, we are absolutely not laying down the law here. It's just this is observational and, you know, if you have a different experience or it, as in you personally have a different experience, not as in you understand sort of three times removed that this is this experience kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, we always like to hear from people. Um, so, you know, if if you feel strongly about something that we've said or whether you agree with us or disagree with us, you know, do get in touch with us. Let us know. We want to hear. We want to learn more. We want to hear different points of view. So anyway, the things that kind of set me off from this. Now, one of them was a laughable tweet, which I sort of passed on to Madeline a while back. Um, it was about a guy saying... I'm paraphrasing here, but what he was essentially saying was that um, indie authors were parasites draining the lifeblood out of traditional publishing where good, honest authors like him were no longer able to make a living because we were taking basically all the audience's money. Yeah. Which is one of the most ludicrous things I've ever read. And I had to share that because that was so stupid. Yeah. It's it's one of those ones which really angers me as well because it, it's a it's a very typical uh, situation where instead of turning against the larger corporations and companies and situations which are causing difficulties in um, traditional publishing, um, we turn our ire on other writers. Basically, small independent businesses of generally one, two, three, maybe half a dozen people maximum yeah. who are working their asses off to make a living. It's not a case of, 
I rolled in with this second-rate book that I didn't even bother to proofread. I shoved it on Amazon and suddenly I'm getting 500,000 downloads. That, unfortunately, is not how it works. You actually have to produce a quality project, product and go through all the checks and balances that a normal publishing house would, except you don't have a team, you have you, and maybe a couple of friends who are good at things who will trade skills with you. That's yeah. it. And the fact of the matter is, is that really what is considered as good literature um, is entirely based on opinion. Now, I can turn around and I can, t you know, basically say I think that Fifty Shades of Grey is not a good book. But, you know, by the fact that it, it sold so many, clearly it had something about it that yeah. agreed with a lot of people. Um, I mean, to be honest, you wouldn't be wrong about it not being a good book because it's really badly written. But, <laughs> but it absolutely hit a niche. It yeah. filled a niche. It fulfilled a need that was not being addressed in any other way. And yeah, that's why it sold as much as it did. That's why it made its author a millionaire. Yeah. And it, it, one thing I do tend to find is that in particular, whenever you get people who turn around and just say, oh, these indie authors and, you know, these these indie publishers and stuff like that, um, a trend I've seen, and it's not always the case, but a trend I have seen is that the people who are, are writing this tend to be writing literary fiction. And all I can think of is, no, this is you're just angry at genre fiction. <laughs> you're angry at niche mm. genre fiction because your literary fiction is not selling well. Because here's, here's the fact of the matter. Literary fiction has never sold well. It can get a lot of prizes. You know, you can get a, sort of some great reviews. Um, but it doesn't sell as well as genre fiction because genre fiction is easier to read and more universally liked. It's as yeah. simple as that. And what people want are great stories. They don't necessarily want 600 pages of navel-gazing, even if the theme is absolutely perfect and the writing is exquisite. Yeah. I have to say, this guy, I went and checked him out. I'm not going to name names. I don't understand quite where he's coming from because I had a look at his book and it appears to be tripe in the sense of, yes, he's gone for a literary style, but I can't, it looks like incredibly, it looks like, you know how you read some author's first work and most for authors who've produced their first book or whatever are aware that it's probably not going to be the book that sells. They're thrilled yeah. that they've finished a book because that's an amazing milestone. This looked like it might be this guy's first or second book and he assumed it was beyond criticism. Right. And it was incredibly self-indulgent um, in terms of, you know, clearly the main character was kind of a, a write-in for himself and... He'd made him the best of everything, you know, this great thinker, philosopher, etc. Um, he wasn't published by a big five publisher. And yes, you could argue he's trad because he went with a small press who published in a traditional format. Mm -hmm. But they weren't well known or well established either. So I'm like, where exactly are you arguing from here? Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, what you, you kind of look like you've gone for something that's basically a vanity press, but without having to actually pay them money. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'd like to say that I didn't just go and look him up out of spite. This was kind of a, if I'm going to really take the piss out of somebody, I like to know that I'm, I've actually got some, that, I, that I'm actually not talking out of my ass. So I thought, well, maybe he's written the ne next great heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, and I just don't know it. So I went yeah. looking. In my opinion, it was not. <laughs> Good on you. 
I didn't even go that far. I just sort of saw the tweet and went, what? <laughs> I mean, I'd forgive you if you stopped at the tweet and went, I'm not bothering because he'd misspelled something in the tweet as well. <laughs> at that I, point, it's kind of ironic. Yeah, I have certain patience for, you know, for people misspelling things um, as someone who is dyslexic, but I don't have patience for people who are judging others for the poor quality of their writing. Um with the idea of, oh yeah, you know, it's not properly edited and stuff like that, when they have not even properly edited their tweet. You don't get to judge other people and then not be judged yourself by the same standards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to say, this particular form of ego, where the writing is very much an extension of that person's id, if you like, or maybe it's an extension of their super ego, I don't know. But when it when it's that and they believe it's beyond criticism, that's something I tend to mostly see with newish male writers. I'm not saying that f- female writers don't do it, but it's less pronounced. Um, so this is somebody who I presume hasn't really ever gone through beta readers, hasn't really ever taken serious, robust critique of his work. Mm. and somehow expected that once it was out there and and published in some format that he would just be universally praised. And, you know, okay, admittedly, when I was 12, I thought that you had a book and then a publisher sort of wooed you into giving giving them your book kind of thing, Um, as in that they would be privileged to publish it for you if you produced a book. (laughs) Um, I was 12 when I believed that guys and I obviously understand now and have done for many many years that that is an unrealistic way to think of a business model because that's what publishing is as we will go into it absolutely is Um, the, the other thing I saw recently was an article about gatekeeping and how Twitter gatekeeping is actually pushing young adults out of the young adults conversation in terms of books and literature yeah and some of it was some of it almost made a point and some of it was kind of like you've written a contentious essay for the sake of being contentious but it did get me started thinking about gatekeeping as a process and something that is attached to publishing and writing and book reviewing and it's not really something that Madeline and I have ever really addressed before so we are going to dive into that today Yeah. I will say something about Twitter, which I think is important to remember um, whenever Twitter sort of comes onto into conversation. Um, I use Twitter. I like it. I like to be be able to sort of keep in touch, particularly with my fellow children's writers. Um, It's we've got a really lovely little community there. It's really nice to see what they're up to and to take part in these kind of little things. So I like Twitter. Twitter, however, is put forward, particularly when people talk about newspapers and and they say, oh, these opinions have been brought forward or such and such is cancelled, etc. They draw on Twitter. Twitter is actually, in terms of social media platforms, very small. It is nowhere as large as something like Facebook, for example. Um, It's actually very, very small. And so when we look at Twitter like it's supposed to be the, the, the pinnacle of human opinion, it's not. Not at all. It's actually a very small amount of people. And just like whenever you see reviews online, for for a place, if you see lots and lots of kind of 
bad reviews for a thing and and some and lots of good reviews you've got to bear in mind that for the majority of people when they get a product and they're happy with it they don't bother leaving a review no, they just they're happy with it if they if they're not happy with it that's when they tend to leave a review i mean i have to say um just briefly on the review thing and from personal experience that if you let's say for example you sell 100 books mm-hmm. you might get one review out of that yeah. out of selling 100 books because as madeline says most people if they like it they enjoy it they then won't say anything yeah um, i have people who have sent me lovely lovely fan mail where they've been very complimentary but they haven't rated the book and i wouldn't ever ask them to um that's not the point that's not me going oh but you could have rated the book then <laughs> um, instead of writing to me no i'd much rather hear that you enjoyed the book and that it got you through hard times etc that's great i love that Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't occur to most people to go, well, I really enjoyed this. Here is my opinion. I must share it with the world. That That's for people like me who like writing book reviews. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it is worth considering that because Twitter is, it, whenever you hear opinions and stuff on Twitter, that is from the most vocal people. Um, and again, you've also got to remember that Twitter is for people who want to talk to the whole general public. And for a large amount of people, they don't want to do that. Um, and you only really do that if you've got, if you've got a reason to, usually, um, or you've kind of just been pulled into it. Yeah. Um, but it does not reflect the entirety of humanity, which is why Twitter can be so damaging because you can get onto there and you can hear things on there and you can sort of be bullied on there um, and feel like, oh God, um, the world is against me. And it's not. It's some very vocal people um, who have, who often can only take something which is very complex and put it into a tiny, tiny bracket, like a headline. And that's the only thing that's going to be read or seen. Um, And it's so easy to take things out of context anyway. So it's... It's important to remember that whenever Twitter sort of comes into the foray, it's very small in terms of the amount of people on there and the amount of, and the people, the kind of people who are on there giving up big opinions are there because they feel very, very strongly about it. And that doesn't tend to reflect the whole, um, you know, the whole of humanity for better or for worse. Yeah. And the other thing to consider, obviously, is the people who are on there really giving out on opinions and things are often there giving out on opinions in a performative way because that happens to be where most of their demographic audience is situated yeah that's where people know to find them ergo they are at least 20 percent playing to the peanut gallery a little bit on twitter i think is fair to say that's not to say twitter's bad again like madeline i enjoy it i like using i like using it to find out book news to connect with people um i like you know, there's a few Dissecting Dragon fans on Twitter that you, you know, it's nice to touch base with as well. Yeah, absolutely. So. And Twitter can also be a powerful tool in order to spread information um, and bring things to light and be, you know, pivotal for, for certain movements and things like that. So this is not me saying Twitter is the, you know, is, is evil unless you're using it only for light, fun stuff. You can use it for some very serious stuff as well and for good. It's just worth remembering where it is in terms of how it represents the entirety of humanity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's look at gatekeeping. 
what is gatekeeping? <laughs> um, it's in the title. Well, <laughs> it's in the title. Um, gatekeeping is, in, in writing terms, it's a metaphor for a small group of people deciding what kinds of stories get published. That's, that's a very, very broad description, and we're going to hone that down to something a bit more precise. Yeah. Um, does it exist? Uh, yes, to a certain extent, in my opinion. Um, but I will say that it is far less likely that your story will be kept out of circulation for, you know, certain gatekeeping reasons now than it has than has ever been the case before. We've seen a huge shift in this over the last sort of decade and mm-hmm. slightly before that. Yeah, um, for you know, to very positive effect in terms of also representation um, and what and who was allowed to be published and seen and heard, um, which is excellent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I think here's the thing, which I think a lot of people, I think we're working with a set of information that is slightly behind the times on some things. We kind of assume that publishing certainly traditional publishing is very set in a certain direction rather than seeing that it is making change just not quite as quickly as people would like it to yeah so basically reasons that gatekeeping as we understand it as in a small group of white cis uh mostly male um gatekeepers stopping certain stories getting through because they're not familiar with those kinds of stories Mm -hmm. rather than being actively hostile to them um that that's kind of almost almost gone in a lot of ways. Um, but first and foremost, publishing is about a business. They care about money, which they get by selling books. That's the thing they care about. Mm-hmm. If you happen to be from any particular sort of minority and you produce a fantastic book that they think will sell millions, they're not going to keep you out because of that. Yeah. Okay. Because it's about money. Um, that that is the the sad fact, but at the same time, it should also be encouraging because kind of that's uh, equal opportunities for people who can. It, you've you've got a good book, we will sell it, kind of thing. We want to make money off you. Don't don't make the mistake of assuming we're your friends. We might be very friendly, but we're not actually your friends, kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So at the, for the last sort of seven to ten years, there's been a huge drive for stories from more marginalised writers to the mm-hmm. point where you probably get quite a lot more of those through the gates inverted commas um that are maybe not quite oven ready whereas you know if you don't have that angle that sort of background as an author or whatever that that very marketable and sellable background at the moment you're less likely to get through it's shifted it is not almost a complete reverse in some respects than it was sort of 10 years ago yeah, but it's um, this is uh, I agree that that is the case, but it's also hinged on something that's very important. And again, this is what Jules means when she's talking about we're making changes in the right right direction, but they're not happening very fast. And there's a number of reasons for that. So at the moment, um, you know, there is a big call for we want minority stories, we want stories from you know um, from people with disability, from people of color, from um, people in the LGBTQ community, etc. They want these stories. Um, but at the same time, publishing in terms of who 
runs it and who is and who is in sort of decision making sort of positions is still I mean, it's still largely white there is it's quite interesting in that publishing is a lot of it is female but the the people in the the largest position of power tend to be male still um so you still also have to get past the invisible invisible prejudice um that lies within that in that you could write something very good but if they don't get it they're not going to put it forward so you also have to write something which they're going to understand or that they feel is going to be marketable um and as Jules says that you know the dark side of it is saying oh yeah we want we want minority voices and a part of that is do you I do thoroughly know and believe that there are several people in the publishing industry who genuinely want to represent um these so-called undiscovered voices as it were these you know these minority voices and they they genuinely want to see things from new angles not just in terms of actually evening out what's been out there and providing a more, um, you know, diverse narrative, but also because we're, they, they want something new. They want something different. But I do also think that part of it is very much a, we want to tick this box kind of thing, which is where the kind of the rushing that Jules was talking about starts to come through as well in the, we believe that we can sell this because we can say, Oh, but it's by a black author. Yeah. Um, which or is, by a queer author, which is not good. Yeah, no, it 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 it's absolutely does a disservice to everyone, the readers, the author, and yeah. you know the the system ultimately yeah. long term. Yeah, I mean, um, it, and also it does a terrible disservice to an author because first of all, actually, for your book to get there, it does have to be decent for your book to get to that level. It might still need a little bit of work, but if it's put out in a rush and then it doesn't perform as well as it should have, that can be it for you as an author, which is not what you want. It you do not want to be, be... A, a, a one book, you know, that, that that can be the end of your writing career, or it can certainly make things a lot more difficult. It can make things a lot more difficult in terms of you getting another deal with a big five publisher, put it that way. Yeah. Um, I absolutely don't think it has to be the end of your writing career. Um, but yeah, I see no. your point from the you might never get a huge advance again. Um, honestly, yep. huge advances are kind of like fairy bargains <laughs> anyway. So yeah. <laughs> as we've talked about in the past, so we won't go into that in yeah. too much detail. But um, and anyway, another reason gatekeeping at publisher level doesn't have to affect you is that self-publishing, indie publishing and small press publishers who are very reputable and very good at what they do mm-hmm. um, are now a genuine threat to traditional publishing. To the point where big five publishers have been forced to cut corners and lower prices. I mean, that's where it can become an issue um, in terms of publishing politics. Mm. So the big five publishers, it's very noticeable to me, a librarian, um, that the paperback copies of books are not very well bound anymore. They used to be much more long-lived than they are. Mm. Now, you can... they. You know, obviously some people are more abusive to books than others, particularly if the books aren't their own, um, which is most annoying to me. But, <laughs> but they, they, you know, they genuinely aren't as well bound. I've had books where someone has literally taken a brand new book out and brought it back to me and said, look, six pages have fallen out here. I'm really sorry. I genuinely didn't do anything to it. 
And they're absolutely yeah. right. They're just mass produced in order to get as many out as possible, in order to sell them at cut price in supermarkets and things. And there's nothing really wrong with that, except that, again, this is the desperate race up the charts for a book rather than the slow growth, which means that you have a long tail in terms of sales, which means that you gradually become a more household name. And mm. that's what you actually want if you're selling books. You want that long tail behind you of proven sales that gradually go up with each book. That's that's how you get somewhere and stay there. Um, selling a million copies of one book is actually not making your your writing career. And in I that mean, it, respect, it can, but it it, it it's it not can, a definite. <laughs> it can, but it's not as likely. Um, and you, depending on what the the big five publisher has paid you in terms of advance, and if you didn't mm. know any better, and your agent was a little bit grabby, maybe, um, and didn't caution you to scale back, then you that you can be set up for failure kind of thing without yeah. it being your fault at all, just because you're naive and you, you don't know, you haven't been in the business very long. Yeah. So um, that's that's not great. But on the other hand, it's perfectly plausible and doable to publish as an indie writer and to fa actually publish as a hybrid writer. So to have some books on contract with publishers and to do some yourself. And most of the people I know of who are very successful with writing either hybrid or they indie publish, the ones who are making a living at it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's this, it's, it's the slowly evaporating myth that to be a successful author, you need to traditionally publish. Yeah. Um, and that you can only exclusively traditionally publish. As time goes on, um, this is just becoming less and less so to the point that there are, you know, majorly published authors who are pointing out how unfair certain contracts are with publishers um, and pay and things like that. Um, and, and basically saying that the pay for, for, a, for a published author now, as in traditionally published author now, is not sustainable. It used to be that if you were a, a traditionally published author who was churning out, you know, good quality books, you could, you could afford to live like that. And now you can't, not on its own. But if you are a self-published author who is, you know, churning out books at a, at a good rate, you still need, you need to be doing it fast. You certainly can't be a, a self-published author who, you know, does a George R. R. Martin kind of situation. <laughs> um, <laughs> not unless um, you're shit hot at marketing. Yeah. Then it's a bit dicey. <laughs> um, uh, you're, you can you can live off of that. And so having a mix is actually fairly decent and it's not a cop-out in the least. It's absolutely not. And there are some things where at the moment the market isn't right to sell... For example, at the moment the market is not right to sell urban fantasy to agents and to publishers. It's just not being bought. However, yeah. if you indie publish it, it is absolutely being bought at voracious rates mm -hmm. by readers who are hungry and who get through 12 books a month. And that is the audience you want to be targeting. So you may as well work out how to do it properly, do it yourself, produce a quality project, product, build an audience, do it that way and keep all the money yourself. Yeah. Particularly since the market seems to be going in that direction. This is where, unfortunately, you do have to do a bit of work that isn't just writing. You have to go out and you have to look at things. You have to read other people's books. You have to see what's popular and why it's being sold and and how it's being done. But it is absolutely a doable thing. 
Yeah. And there are upfront fees for you, you know, you, for yeah. editors, for, for book covers, unless you're able to do your own. Um, and it's worth, you know, noting, being honest about your own skill when it comes to book covers, for example. If you genuinely feel like, you know, if you think, oh, well, I'm, I'm sort of a bit of a hobbyist. Um, I, you know, if you're a, if you can genuinely say, yes, I can create something which is good, then absolutely go for it. Um, but, you know, a book cover, you know, people will judge your book by the book cover. It will make a big difference on whether they pick it up or not. So don't be cheap in that regard either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if, in addition to that, it's okay to go out and acquire skills for yourself. Yes, you know, absolutely. That will take time. That, so you know, producing a book yourself is either going to be an investment in money or in time or in both. Yeah. Or some combination of the two. Yeah. And, you, you know, that that's just the way it is. It might mean that you get to go out less than you did before because you are staying home and learning Photoshop or learning how to edit or how to format or something like that. But once you've got those skills, they are very transferable. They are. So, um, yeah, it, it's absolutely something you can do. You have options as a writer. Um, at least you do if you live in the Western world and you speak English or, you know, French, German, Spanish, which all have their own dedicated markets, by the way. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I found very interesting talking about in this marketing group I'm part of, whereby people have had their books, you know, these are American and British authors who had their books translated into French, and German and Spanish and have found out that actually what they write doesn't tend to sell very well in Spanish-speaking countries, but it does sell quite well in German and slightly less well in, in French. So mm. in Germany and France, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. uh, Switzerland, etc. So it, it's, it's, again, it's yet another thing to, to study the market for. But basically, if you have a story to tell from a different viewpoint, you can find an audience because they're absolutely out there. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just about finding it. And... I mean, my last little bit just about sort of traditional publishing in this section is just to say that you can write something which is very, very good and it will not get picked up by an agent or a publisher. Yeah, and you that can could do be everything for, right yeah. and still fail. Yeah, and that could be for a number of reasons. Um, one of that those things is will probably literally just be because of the you know of of the current climate and what's popular and what isn't and what they deem to be the thing that's going to sell and people can get that wrong um what i don't think is happening a lot of the time anymore i do think it still does happen so don't get me wrong because i think that whilst it might not always be explicit um everyone has uh, you know, ingrained with the, within them uh, sexism, um, you know, uh, prejudice and, and racism just based on the system. So it might not even be conscious, uh, but I do think some people's books are being stopped on those, on those levels from a lack of understanding or just a lack of ability to connect or even something a little bit darker and more vicious. But I think for the most part, actually, in given my experience with sort of British publishing and things like that, um, it is almost exclusively to do with what they think will sell at this particular time. And nothing to do with actually necessarily with how good of a story it is or how good of a writer you are. Um, yeah, it, it, 
these things don't always come into to play. No. So is gatekeeping not a problem at all then? Um, well, yes and no, as we've just been saying. Mm. Um, publishing can still be sexist, racist, homophobic because some of the people involved are still a bit sexist, racist, homophobic, often without meaning to. Yeah. Um, Although I'm sure there are a few who do do mean to. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I mean, there are a few of those guys still, still kicking around. Don't get us yeah. wrong. I mean, but the, the thing is, a lot of, I genuinely believe a lot of it is not deliberate, not anymore. Yeah. Um, because most of the old guard has retired or literally died off, you know, in terms of traditional publishing. that There's very few of them there anymore. And again, they're where they are at the very top because they like making money. Yeah. So they tend to not really touch the, the whole book selling side of it as much themselves anymore. Hmm. Um, anyway, it's, as we've said before, the process of change in traditional publishing is very slow and it, it is frustrating. Um, but I have seen it. I, I, the, the benefit of being an avid reader for my entire life is I've seen what is available change hmm. over the last four decades. Um, so I know it is definitely changing. Um but yeah. this I mean, is... I, I know it's changing as well because I remember being a teenager <laughs> and having absolutely no fantasy fiction, pretty much no fantasy fiction which had a gay character or or a you know a, a queer character in any shape or form, um, yeah. unless it was a story about how awful it was to be <laughs> queer. Well, it's unless you um, managed to stumble across Mercedes Lackey's Chronicles of Valdemar or something, which does have one of the first openly gay characters in fantasy. Yeah. Um, but then, it, yeah, you, you wouldn't have found it. Yeah. And certainly there wouldn't have been a lot in terms of sort of YA kind of, or children's popular sort of fiction. The first experience I have ever had of seeing a gay character in a book or fiction, which wasn't, you know, a weird depiction, as it were, was in the Black Magician trilogy by Trudy Canavan. Um, and now, now I, I sort of, I pick up, um, YA books and, I mean, I mean, just looking at Leah Bardugo's books, for example, which are very popular, popular to the extent that they've got a Netflix series. Leah Bardugo's books are full of representation. Yeah, definitely. It's also worth mentioning at this point, this is just a little aside, but um, middle grade fiction, so older junior fiction, so we're talking sort of like the 8 to eight to 12 or the 10 to 14 stage. Yeah. Um, for a long time, any sort of gay type representation was kind of kept out of that. Yeah. And to be honest, having spoken recently to a friend of mine whose middle grade book has come, I say middle grade, it's not really middle grade, it's sort of young teen slash mm -hmm. middle grade. Um, was actually told to remove any of, you know, to make more subtle any obvious gay illusions in there. So, you know, that is still something that it's not homophobia. It's a case of we don't think that will sell because the people buying those books for the people who will read them are parents. And some of them are incredibly paranoid about what their children are allowed to read. Mm. Um, so that is that's a society wide thing, and that's not necessarily publishing. That's publishing going. We're a business. We need to make money. We're not going to buy your book if it's got this in it because we can't sell it. Yeah, um, which sucks. That's bleak. But let let's start from the honest perspective of that's why it's happened. Yeah, um, and we can we can argue until the cows come home. And I do thoroughly believe that. Well, no, it's your duty to push these and challenge these things because when you start to do that, everything else moves forward with it. It's on you. 
Um, but again, as we've said, they're a business. They are thinking about money first, um, predominantly. Um, though I do, again, thoroughly believe and know several people on several levels of publishing who are absolutely fighting to have more representation in books. Um, and, and we are moving towards it. Um, yeah slowly um, so slowly but we are we are moving yeah. and it, it, it is the traditional publishing that is sort of moving a lot slower um some of the smaller imprints are managing to move faster so my absolute favorite publishers are tour.com um they're science fiction and fantasy mostly and while i haven't loved every single title they've ever produced and i have read a fair few of them they are absolutely full to bursting with representation and it's good stories. It's good storytelling, it's interesting science fiction and fantasy and it's clearly not there just for representation but they're very passionate about that being included in there as well. Um, Orbit, another science fiction fantasy imprint, also mm. are better at bringing those sort of books forward. So really it depends on the publisher as well, yeah. we have to be fair. Yeah, but Absolutely. But this slowness is why traditional publishing is struggling against savvy indie authors, because indie authors are going, oh, right, so you want this in fiction. That's something I agree with. I can write this book. And, you know, the Venn diagram of what you want to read and what I want to write has a big section in the middle with a lot of crossover. And I can absolutely write books there and I can produce one a month or for mm -hmm. a year or whatever. And mm -hmm. that's something that traditional publishing can't keep up with. Yeah. So that's why they're struggling. So in some respects, why you might not be getting through the door as someone who is coming from a sort of more minority angle could be just that, you know, it's not the right time for that book. They don't think they can sell it, even if they do love it. Yeah. The other thing to consider is that you don't automatically get super writer powers if you are a minority author. Maybe your book isn't actually that good yet and you need to work on it and you need to work on your craft. Yeah. Um, and Jules and I are saying this from the perspective of of being part of different minorities ourselves. Um, and from the perspective that I wrote a fair amount of stuff before I was, I was ever published. And some of it, you know, I love it, but it wasn't good. And I even turn around and say, okay, but some of the stuff that was published, I now can write better. So, you know... It... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was writing in secret, or so I thought, for 20 years before anything was published. Um, turns out I was not as sneaky as I thought I was going to be, but that's a completely different story. But, but yeah, and, you know, my first book, I still have great affection for that story, but every so often one of the lines in the book will occur to me and I'll cringe a little bit because I think I could do it a lot better now. Mm. I'm just not going to George Lucas... I'm not going to just keep <laughs> redoing it and redoing it because you know what? There are people out there that love the book as it is and they don't necessarily want to see Anakin Skywalker's head pasted on. <laughs> I hope you get my metaphor. Anyway, yes. <laughs> sometimes you've just got to let something stand and go, yeah, I wasn't the best per best author I could be back, back then, but you know what? I've got better. It'd be really depressing if the first book you wrote was the best thing in your career and it was all downhill from there. Anyway. Yeah, that would actually be really, really awful. You don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't want that. You don't want to peak at number one. <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah, basically most of us don't write a good book on the first, second, third, sixth, tenth, 
attempt. Yeah. Um, most of us have what Stephen King calls trunk novels, where you write the book and you maybe you don't even really get a proper ending on it. And you think, well, I like the story, but I know it's not great. And you just stick it in a trunk somewhere and forget about it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think the problem is that, you know, you dedicate a lot of time to writing and you and you can really love a story. You can really love a story and it can still not be good enough. And that can be heartbreaking. Um, but you have never wasted time by writing it because every every word, every sentence, every page is honing your skills. And this is just something that I think a lot of people forget and don't consider when they are writing, is that it is not the book ultimately that you want to sell, particularly when you're looking for an agent. You are not just looking for someone, you're obviously you're pitching your book to them, but ultimately you're also pitching yourself. Um, which is why I've never understood when people are rude or, or sort of really nasty to agents, because I'm like, yeah, but now they're especially not going to want to work with you, are they? Yeah, and the actual publishing world of publishing professionals is quite small and they all talk to each other. So they if do. you give yourself a bad name, your, your name will go around to someone else. Yes, yeah, it absolutely um, will. I think this is, I'm just going to mention this here because I see people complaining about not getting enough sales or not getting enough recognition. It doesn't matter who you are or what background you come from. An audience does not owe you their time and attention. You have to earn that by writing something really good and by being, I don't know, try being charming, attractive, uh, funny, interesting, witty if when well, you're doing the selling yourself part online or to an agent. Yeah. You know, those things tend to work quite well together, particularly if you do a good book and do that. Yeah. Um, Alas, the, the days where it's just, uh, I've, I've written a book. <laughs> okay, well, it'll be published and <laughs> that's all you And then you we'll needed. send you a check kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If they were ever like that, it's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, one thing I saw that kind of irritated me recently was a debut author who... I believe was a minority background, I don't want to mention who or, or whatever, was really yelling again on Twitter about how it was unfair that there weren't going to be any physical arcs of her book because due to COVID and everything, a lot of conventions and things got shut down, understandably. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been safe. Ergo, she was not being able to do a book tour or, or go to conventions and meet fans and hand out physical copies of her book, hand out physical arcs. And then she found out that another that another imprint of her publisher was producing three different covers of three different arcs for Jay Kristoff's forthcoming book, Empire of the Vampire. So she was really having a go about that in you know in a way that I actually thought was quite incautious, considering you know what when you're talking on Twitter, everybody can see you. You do realise that, <laughs> including the publishing house and your agent and. Yeah. J. Christoph and J. Christoph's agents. And she was trying to make out that it was a sexism thing and that she was being discriminated against. And I'm like, no, he's been writing and been published for 12 years now. Mm -hmm. And he has sold several million copies of his books. Ergo, the publishers think it's worth throwing some extra marketing arm behind him. Yeah. Because they know they will get that money back. It is literally about money. It's got nothing to do with the fact that he is a white guy. Yeah. Genuinely nothing. 
Yeah. Now you could argue, you could look at that situation and argue, okay, but does he actually need that extra marketing because he has, you know, he he's already got the success. Um, that's not really the issue at hand. I feel, um, and I I do feel for this for this young this young woman because I I I can understand basically having this sort of dream of oh you know you've always wanted to be, you know, um, traditionally published and. You can imagine those physical copies and you can imagine doing the book tour. And it's really awful what, I mean, COVID just in general was awful, is awful. Um, but, you know, it, it, it messed a lot of things up for, for authors and the publishing industry in particular. Um, I mean, even we felt it, um, from, you know, from where we are. So there was a, a big effect. Um, so I can understand the disappointment, but yeah. Taking your rage out online. This is the thing. You might feel that you've got a genuine grievance. Yeah. Um, that is something to talk to privately with your close writer friends. That is not something to emblazon on the internet. Yeah. It's something to because also talk about with your agent as well. If you yes, feel that absolutely. the publisher is not doing their due, talk to your agent because they are they're meant to be your fighter in the ring. You know, I think this is the problem. The absolute last, basically, your last resort is raising a ruckus online. Yeah, and only if the payoff is actually genuinely worth it. Yeah, and in this case, this wasn't. This was someone who was just complaining, and all they've done is cemented themselves in my mind as someone who, in future, is most likely to cause trouble. Now, if I think that in a very passive way, I wonder how many publishers and agents think that. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like just don't do it. It's like um, the author of oh god, uh, children of I want to say children of blood and bone. That's it, children of blood and bone. Mm. He was complaining how it was fine for a white author to steal a black author's title, and Nora Roberts, you know, Nora Roberts, the legend, the one who's been writing for thirty odd years and has well over a hundred titles to her name, produces four books a year mm. without fail. And just sort of has been steadily doing it and actually kind of pretty good at helping other authors up behind her. Had a book out called Blood and Bone that was also young adult at the same time. And this this author of uh, Children of Blood and Bone was kind of... Unfortunately, she should have talked to her agent first because her agent could have then told her that A, copyright, uh, titles are not copyright, B... Titles and things are generally decided before a book goes into production. Mm -hmm. So that book would have been in production for 18 months before it was released. Yeah. So there is no way that Nora Roberts could have copied her, even if it was a copyright infringement issue. Yeah. And see that what she was doing was drawing a lot of harmful attention to herself, that she wasn't helping herself in any way. But she didn't. She instead went to Twitter first to complain about it. And she did it in a way where what we tell people is that because you come from a certain background, you are the victim and you must expect to be the victim. And I think we need to start changing that because you absolutely don't have to be. When there's genuine discrimination going on, it should be spoken about. Absolutely. But at the same time, we, we've got to stop making everybody see discrimination everywhere. It would be really difficult. I mean, I had a real chip on my shoulder as a teenager 
Mm. for being female and not being able to pursue a lot of male type things or it being more difficult for me because I was female and mm-hmm. um, having men genuinely block the way and say you can't do this you're a girl you're not clever enough that's literally what my A-level chemistry teacher told me mm-hmm. I'm like if I'd allowed that to go into the rest of my life I wouldn't have accomplished half of what I have because I would be just sat there being the victim in my own head yeah so I genuinely think that this this is something that needs to be addressed because if you think the world is set against you, then that is the position you are going to come from. When in fact, you're at the start of your career. She, Nora Roberts, was kind of well into you know the middle of her career. She was at the height of it. Mm. The, that's comparing apples and oranges. You, you, you're absolutely not in the same niche at all. And there's absolutely room for both books with similar names because they're completely different books. Yeah. And you know what? The, the readers are probably yes they probably would read both books and the reader is kind of like not oh here's one slice of cake oh no another slice of cake well I guess I have to choose they just go cool two slices of cake if you follow me yeah <laughs> Read, readers don't go oh my god there's two books oh what are we going to do they go oh great there's two books yeah I also think unless the book cover was also looked remarkably similar and the premise was also remarkably similar um yeah you there there isn't a lot to stand on but then look i don't know the whole situation because i i haven't heard about this is the first time i've heard about it um and i also want to say as as jules has said we are not in any way trying to say that discrimination does not exist within the publishing world um and that people who are faced with genuine discrimination should be silent about it. No, do not be silent <laughs> about it. You do not deserve to be discriminated against. Um, that's just not a thing that should happen. Um, and we say that as people who have been discriminated against for a, a number of different reasons across the board, both by people who might be doing it maliciously and by people who are doing it without thinking about it. Um but yeah, I do think that this was probably a situation where actually the first place she mentioned it shouldn't have been on Twitter. She probably should have t- talked to her agent, probably should have talked to her publisher as well about it and said, hey, this is an issue. Um, and, you know, had had a conversation about it. And going to Twitter, um, yeah, I just feel that whenever things like that happen, it covers up grievances that people on a who are not being you know traditionally published or who who are not you know quite on that level who haven't had that much support um you know are, are being given so they kind of get drowned out um but then at the same time it could be argued no but it brings up the whole conversation about discrimination so I can kind of see both sides, but I do, I do think that this was, this was potentially, yeah, I don't think this was a, a, a discrimination thing at all. I think, I think the problem is that if you, your go-to is immediately, I've been, okay, say, say it was me and um, there's a male author and he's getting paid more than me. Mm-hmm. If I don't fact check and see that he's being pay, paid more than me, let's say it's my historical fiction publisher. Yeah. Um, let's say he's got six books out i've got two out Mm -hmm. let's say he's been wildly successful let's say my royalties don't look as good as his 
and I'm complaining about it. If I go immediately to, well, it's sexism, I'm being prejudiced against, my books aren't being pushed as much, then when people examine it and say, yes, but he's got far more product out than you have, mm-hmm. also he's been doing it longer, he's built more of an audience, he's done more marketing, he's done more public appearances at his own expense mm-hmm. than you. When you compare the statistics, what I've done is I've watered down the argument and people who genuinely do have a discrimination complaint don't get listened to as much because I've gone in there and that's been my first play. Yeah. So instead of fact-checking myself and finding out whether or not I've actually got a case before deciding that someone has taken what is rightfully mine because I'm female and he's male, Mm -hmm. I've fucked it up for everyone else. Yeah. And again, this is the issue with Twitter is that because it's so widespread, because it's like, oh, well, everyone uses Twitter. Um, It's just a kind of the thing that you do. People forget that what it actually means to publish something on Twitter. It is published, um, which is why I always say, if you're going to put anything on on Twitter, if you're going to put anything um, sort of on social media in general, um, consider, would you put it in a book first? Would you publish it in a book first? Yeah. Um, who Think of the last person on earth that you want to read that tweet and then think, what are the consequences if they read that tweet? Yeah, absolutely. I, I genuinely think it's, a, it's another one of, would you actually say it to that person's face as well? Yeah. Um, most people, once they've calmed down a bit, probably wouldn't. Twitter's just not the place, in fact, social media is not the place to be airing your, your anger yeah. on a knee-jerk reaction. <laughs> Don't tweet in anger, guys. <laughs> Never tweet in anger. And, you know, don't think that, I mean, I'm not a saint. I've absolutely been te- tempted. I have, on occasion, written a tweet out, stopped myself, deleted the tweet, gone for a walk, come back to see, see if I still feel that annoyed. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, I don't. And therefore, I don't tweet. This is why I say things like, I don't think I'm given credit, enough credit for the things I don't say. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not a worthlessly horrible person. I wouldn't say things just for the sake of, of being angry and, and, and uh, unpleasant to other people. And I think that most of us just don't run the statistics on things enough. And you absolutely have to. Mm. Life, life isn't fair, okay? You might be starting from a position of, of... Some people start the race half a mile down the track. Yeah. Just because of where they're born. And, you know, that sucks if you're someone who starts the, the race half a mile behind mm-hmm. at the start of the track. Yeah. Life isn't fair. It doesn't mean that everything's stacked against you. You can absolutely catch up and even overtake. Yeah. Many people have done it. Yeah. But, okay, and I do, I do still feel like, you know... We are not belittling the experiences of people who have to um, jump all these extra hurdles just to be able to reach the starting line that other people have had the privilege just to be able to. We're not saying that. And, you know, sometimes there are obstacles which cannot be overcome, but there might be different paths for you. And this is, again, why the most damaging idea that traditional publishing is the only way to go is, is, is terrible. Because it basically says you complete this obstacle course um, or you'll never be a writer. And that's just not the case. If you cannot complete the obstacle course for whatever reasons, 
consider the other paths. They are just as valid, um, and you might actually find much better success within them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I just want to mention briefly where gatekeeping is genuinely becoming an increasing problem. Mm -hmm. Um, We've obviously touched on this a little bit. We've touched on how gatekeeping is becoming a problem in social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the thing that I see so much of, let's say a book blogger writes, let's, let's say they write a review that is not very complimentary in a book they read and let's say that this is a book blogger who is trying to make a name for themselves it's far easier to make a name for yourself as a book blogger if you read something and you hate it Mm. particularly if you aim for somebody who looks like the sort of target that other people will get behind you on yeah and even if you don't deliberately set out to do that once people start following your little crucible journey then it can get very you can start to believe your own press you can really fall into the whole yeah this person needs to be taken down um for example the whole laurie forest her debut novel the black witch the whole point was it was supposed to be deconstructing all kinds of prejudice across the board Mm. um the person who reviewed it made a name for themselves by talking about how racist the book was somehow the fact that this was the point went over her head entirely um and it's the same thing that happened with um, Amelie Wenzel, who wrote Blood Witch, and the fact Blood Air, sorry, not Blood Witch, Blood Air, and the fact that you know, even though she was a, a Chinese immigrant author and she was talking about slavery in terms of the indenture in China that is current within a fantasy setting, mm. um, a certain couple of authors on Twitter really went for taking her down, and her book got you know, delayed because of it. This is this is a real issue, I think, because instead of sort of talking to people if there's a genuine problem, we're listening to a couple of people who've got smallish audiences but still more more power than someone with no audience at all and deciding that we're going to boycott a book before it's even out. Yeah. And that sort of herd mentality is not good. Yeah. It's... It's a situation where, you know, as as a white person, um, I very much want to listen to what black women in particular, black men, uh, have to say about their experiences and certain things because these are they're they're going to have perspectives and things that I'm not going to think of. So I'm going to listen to what they have to say. I'm going to consider what they have to say. But this does not make everyone infallible Um, absolutely not being part of a minority does not make you infallible and this is really important being part of a minority does not mean you represent that entire minority and that's the really damaging thing is if you have let's say you have a gay person who has a, a big voice in terms of social media and stuff like that what they say is not going to represent necessarily what I believe or what Jules believes or what anyone else believes at all. Um, because we're different people and we'll have different experiences and, you know, a different perspective entirely. So it's very, very damaging to basically destroy something with one brush based on one person's or maybe even two people's 
opinion. Um, that's very, very dangerous, even if they are part of that minority um, that feels that it's being badly presented or, or, or whatever. Um, I, sp- I think that's the other thing I've seen, and I've seen an awful lot of this happen on various platforms, social media-wise, whereby two or three people will start crying wolf on a book or a film or something and saying it should be boycotted, mm. and other people who share the same if you want share the same minority or whatever say actually no I didn't find that offensive that actually really worked for me Mm. I honestly don't know what you're getting about and the the supporters of the original three people turn around and shout those people down yeah and it's incredibly hypocritical when people say something like oh amplify marginalized voices but you don't mean all marginalized voices you just mean the ones that fit your own political narrative at the moment and that's something I would like to see stop happening, to be quite honest. Mm. Yeah. Again, it's one of these really tricky situations where we're balancing the situation of saying, listen to what people are saying, um, whilst actually also then saying, okay, but listen to what other people are saying too. Basically, listen to everything that's being said and then make up your own mind. Yeah. You're never going to be 100% right. And you are never going to be pure enough because nobody is, not even Robespierre. No. <laughs> and it's that kind of logic, unfortunately, with a lot of this. Um, and you've got to think about things like so many people who on Tumblr were were big kind of leaders of, of the sort of woke movement are now coming forward and saying, I don't really think like that anymore. Now I'm not now I'm not an angry teenager or a frustrated 20 year old. I actually think a lot of what I said was very damaging. Please don't hate me. I don't want to be cancelled. I've seen so many posts like that. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a whole news article about the the girl who created the cancel culture kind of thing, yeah. uh, like a celebrity is cancelled. And she was basically going through, I think her sister had just died and she was so angry. Yeah. And she she was basically building up this whole narrative, um, which... Again, also puts this very damaging ideas of, of, of celebrities, and we now include writers within that, need to be perfect. They need to be what we imagine them to be. And that's just unrealistic because they're human beings. And here's a fun fact. Everybody will make mistakes. These are not always malicious mistakes. I know that I have probably said things on social media um, which I would look back at now, if I even remember. <laughs> I know, because occasionally I find things and I'm like, ooh, pass Madeleine. No. Um, <laughs> and, you know, these do not reflect what I think now and probably don't actually reflect what I thought back then either. Um, and you will make mistakes. And, yeah, just saying that everyone has to be 100% perfect or they are cancelled is very dangerous. Yeah, one day you will end up on the wrong end of that mob. Yeah, well, I mean, just so, j- just look at the, uh, the the guy who created the guillotine in, in France. The French Revolution is a great example of that <laughs> because it all started out as, oh, okay, well, we'll kill the Aristotle because they're so bad. It was just a bloodbath in the end. It was an absolute bloodbath, and you know. The, then revolutionaries started killing each other. And you know what the worst part about the French Revolution was? Is that it was all about the fact that people were hungry. And you know what happened at the end? People were still hungry. 
Yeah. The people who, who you know, portentatively were, were, were the ones who, who everyone was fighting for, nothing changed for them. Um, it was just a lot of people died. Um, yeah. So even if you start with noble intentions, um, if you kind of give in to that and don't really sort of examine things critically, um, it, no one's life is actually going to be made any better. Yeah, absolutely. So... To sum up the what, the last little bit that we've just said, basically, gatekeeping, yeah, it's still kind of a thing in publishing, but it's dying out. Yeah. And we should just let it die. It's natural death. It's going. Um, gatekeeping is, however, becoming an increasing problem in other ways. So other writers, social media, the court of Twitter, and, you know, book bloggers. Um, I'm sure many of them don't actually mean to do this, but you always have more power than you think you do if someone is willing to read your words. And that's where it can become an issue. Um, so we need to look at ways that we can mitigate this. So I would say <laughs> we've already said, listen to what everyone says and then make up your own mind. That's really, really important. Mm-hmm. And I always say seek three independent sources of verification before you come down on whether something's a fact or not. Yeah. Um, and um, and consider what, you know, if someone is, is I'm going to say whistleblowing here, but, you know, if someone, if someone is, is, is crying wolf... <laughs> Um, consider what they might have to gain from crying wolf as well. Yeah, you should absolutely always go cue bono. Who benefits? So in this situation, who actually benefits from what's going on? Yeah. Um, and I honestly think that most of the time you will be a lot happier if you you notice something and you don't get involved. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking of that that thing where oh god, what was her name? Uh. She was a fairly well-known children's YA author and this 20-something um, from a university literacy programme said, yeah, part of the reason she got elected to the council was so that she could stop this woman's work ever being read. She said it as a throwaway comment on a college magazine. And then she basically got hounded on Twitter when this author managed to dig up the quote, pasted it out of out of context into her own tweet. And you had people like N.K. Jemison and... Um, other well-known, particularly female authors who were piling on board saying this was terrible and that the young woman got basically hounded off social media because of this. And then someone found the original article and said, hang on a minute, <laughs> and had a look at it. And basically it showed her that that was not exactly what she'd said at all hmm. and that this was not someone who had any real power whatsoever this was someone who'd been a bit smart-mouthed to in an interview and it had been picked up, taken out of context. And this author, who had something like 250,000 followers minimum, and it, you know what you've got on Twitter is kind of like probably a sixth of what you might have in real life mm. because not everybody's on social media actively like that. Mm. So she had way more power and she set all these big authors on this person and... Yeah, everybody who got involved looked really bloody stupid. Yeah. Because they just didn't do a simple check. Yeah. It's So don't part don't participate in takedowns. Yeah. Basically, just don't get involved. The... Again, it's I really do think that there has been some amazing things which have happened in terms of movements on Twitter and people coming together and and getting involved in these kinds of things. But I also think that mob mentality is always dangerous. 
unless you are coming into it from an informed place, which is why if you see something that makes you angry, look it up first. Um, it, it's really important that you come to it from an educated standpoint, particularly if actually it is true. Because if you're coming to something from an educated standpoint, and it is true, and it is, there is a great reason to have grievance, it gives you the power to argue and stand your ground, you know, yeah, which, is, which is just as important, um, rather than to be involved in something which, you know, very often isn't quite what it seems to be. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I'd add to this is that read what you want. Mm. So if you want to read a book and a bunch of people have for some reason cancelled that author and decided that everyone should boycott their work, you decide. Have they gone, has this person legitimately done something? Have they crossed your line for what you consider unacceptable and therefore you won't read their work because of it? Or do you just want to read the work anyway? Yeah. It's, it's entirely up to you. You cannot be told what you should read by other people. And I am... I have to say I'm absolutely done with people telling other people what they should think because you're never going to think the right thing. So think for yourself. Yeah. I mean, for my my way of going forward is, and some people may find this hard to believe, the way that we've talked about A Court of Thorns and Roses, for instance, <laughs> is that actually if I don't enjoy a book, I just stop reading it and I don't tend yeah. to talk about it. Um, and when I do talk about a book, particularly if we talk about it on um, on dissecting dragons, I am picking an issue which I find to be, you know, very very personal. My very personal issues with it. And at no point would I say you shouldn't read it. You know, I have very very big issues with Fifty Shades of Grey, but I've never read it because of the issues that I have with it. I would never then say to anyone else, no, you shouldn't read it. Um, I have issues with The Court of Thorns and Roses. I still really like the series. I still own every book. I even bought the special edition of book one, you know, um, <laughs> at the end of the day. And I would not judge anyone else for reading it. Um, but I can examine it critically. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, if I don't like a book, I will just go, nah, not for me. And if I think that I see something within it which is very damaging, then I might talk about it. But yeah, don't gatekeep what other people read. Um, what you might want to do is if you see them reading something that you think actually isn't very good, um, you might want to suggest an alternative. You might want to say, oh, well, you know, that book, I feel that book is quite racist. Um, but this is a really, really good book. Instead, uh, that's probably one of the best ways if you feel like you really need to, to, to sort of make someone aware that they might be reading something damaging or bad. Provide them with a better alternative, but don't judge yeah. them for, for reading what they've read. Absolutely. Um, I have to say, this, in, you know, with, whatever your stance is, that includes things like if people still want to read Harry Potter and they're not really involved in anything else that's going on, then that's up to them. And you don't have to make people feel shit for what they want to continue reading. Mm. It's like, I can't, I've said before, I, I, I physically can't pick up Marion Zimmer Bradley's books anymore, mm. having learned what I learned about her. But 
I see people on Goodreads and I've chatted to them and I've chatted about how much I enjoyed the books when I did read them. Yeah. And I've said, you know, are you, you know when, when they've actually said, so why don't you read her anymore? I'm like, do you want me to tell you? Because it might ruin everything for you. Um, and I, I won't evangelise and try and get them over to my point of view because it's not relevant. My opinion in what someone is doing and how they're enjoying fiction and stories is not relevant to what they're doing. They're not hurting anyone. Yeah. So uh, it, it's one of those things that I think sort of comes with age is learning genuinely to mind your own business where it's appropriate to do so. Yeah. I, I can understand why people are angry about the Harry Potter thing, in particular because J.K. Rowling is still alive and does still have influence. Um, I still thoroughly believe that you should never tell someone else what they can and can't enjoy. Um, I can understand basically feeling betrayed by other people reading, still liking Harry Potter, um, but that's on you. That's that's a very personal thing, I think. Yeah. Um, for me, it's Harry Potter. For me, is incredibly painful for a number of reasons, um, and yet I will still use it as a good. Ex- it's it provides an excellent example when I'm teaching because so many people have read it. Um, yeah. And I don't know, I'm still unsure about whether I could ever pick up and read any Harry Potter again, or whether I could still buy any Harry Potter kind of things in future. Um, I don't know yet when I'm where I'm at with that and how I feel about that. And it, it goes from day to day where I'm like, well, I don't have to, I can separate the author, I can kill the author, I can, I can summon Roland Barthes. Um, um, it's, it's my current struggle with Marilyn Manson. Yeah. In the sense of, you know, I'm be you kind of feel like you're being asked to provide an opinion on things that may or may not have happened X number of years ago between two people who may or may not both have been able to consent to something, mm. and yet something the piece of art that someone produced meant so much to you at a difficult point in your life and actually got you through some tough moments. So, how do you let that go? Yeah. And I think because that's so incredibly personal, that sort of where is your line thing, that's something nobody gets to tell you. So nobody should be telling you what you can and can't read yeah. in that respect. I know just from a very personal perspective, and again, I'm undecided on this. Um, I can understand the rage and upset that people are, are feeling and why they might kind of really want to, to discourage other people from consuming Harry Potter goods. Um from my perspective, I'm not sure I could ever pick up Harry Potter goods again. Um, but I wouldn't begrudge anyone else for deciding to, because Harry Potter means different things to different people. And you could argue, okay, but to do that is a direct tra- is a, de- a direct attack on trans people. Um, I don't think it is necessarily. I don't think people who are buying it are attacking trans people but they are supporting someone who has now really kind of not just had a a sort of an aged opinion but has now sort of found a hill and is dying on it and is actually spreading misinformation and supporting some dangerous um you know companies um so yeah it's a hard one it's a really really hard one um, and I think until I until I know how I feel about it, I cannot decide how other people should feel about it. Honestly, I think even when you've decided how you feel about it, 
you should probably be just keeping it to yourself. I mean, I, to be honest, I probably will because I do tend to just keep these things to myself. But I can understand the anger. Well. I can understand the anger. Yeah. <laughs> That's all, and I can understand the movement and and why. But um, yeah, it's it's just very very it's very very difficult for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, as I said, I don't know how I feel. So. Um, I am not going to be judging other people on, on what they do and how they decide to feel about it. Um, no. Also, particularly because it's it's bold of you, if you ever see someone consuming Harry Potter media, it's bold of you to assume that they are not trans as well. Um, or, or, yeah, an awful lot of trans people still are really into Harry Potter and that. Yeah. Uh, like big time. Exactly. Um, Regardless. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not there's an awful lot. I mean, there's an awful lot of um, Orson Scott Card fans who are gay mm. and who really, really love his sci fi and really love his work and don't care that he literally pays money from his royalties into charities that are kind of involved with, you know, the Pray the Gay Away type camps. Oof. It's like they, they don't care because they love that. And that they're divorcing it from the author. And if you can do that, then that's up to you. You know? Yeah. I would like to add that I'm not one of them. But I'm genuinely saying, okay, well, I've I've met a lot of you who are. And I respect your position because you are entitled to your opinion and to enjoy what you want to enjoy as well. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's just it's just what you do. It's just it's just how you feel. So yeah, basically, try to do as little harm as possible is a generally good rule for life. Try not to be a dick, especially try not to be a dick online if you want to be a published author as well, because it will come back to haunt you. Mm. Um, and don't tell anyone what to read or what they can and can't think. Yeah. Okay, those are three pretty good rules to live by, and they're not too strenuous. Yeah, and don't judge people on the things they might have said a while ago as well. Or the things they might have even written a while ago. Like, you look at sort of Salem's Lot by Stephen King um, does have big homophobic traces, but it's of the era, and the book does not represent, I feel, how Stephen King actually, you know, feels about the gay community. No, it represents how a small town in that era might feel, might have felt about the gay community. Yeah, and how the general lingo as well worked within that. You you do forget actually how quickly things changed. Um, yeah, I mean you absolutely have to take things in context, um, as we've kind of sort of talked about before. The context really does matter. Yeah. So, anyway, on that note, <laughs> yeah, that turned into a heavier discussion than I was intending. It was supposed to be just an idle, organic discuss back and forth, but apparently both of us have felt quite strongly about a few things there, so good. Yeah. I don't think we ever really disagreed on anything. No. Just slight different angles, maybe. Yeah, I, I think it is slightly different angles, um, which I also think comes down to the fact that you are older than me, Jules. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like an insult but I actually mean I actually think that as you get older you become a, a little bit more certain and secure in the way that you kind of decide to approach things 
um, which I think is is natural. I I I I know, for example, my mother used to say the best, her favorite thing about growing up was that, and I quote, "I just give less of a shit." Um, <laughs> that she could just separate things whereas I'm I agree with that but I would think I was actually more decided in my opinions as a 20 something and it's something I've noticed of 20 somethings that they're very decided in their opinions they don't necessarily branch out and get all the information first yeah. whereas I don't really come to a decision but I do get all the information but I care less as you say yeah about I, th- think. I think that's probably more what I felt what I meant is that you have a, a kind of a greater sense of your own standing and of where of where it all kind of fits and how much you care about things and and yeah. you know also knowing which hill to die on whereas i think when when you're in your 20s things very much are ah the next big wave and and you kind of get swept up in it um, and then you kind of just—I don't know—you get smashed against the rocks, and you're lying there, a little bit confused and bedraggled. And then the next yeah. wave comes. Um, I have to say, add a couple of decades, and you're kind of like, "Oh, it's another wave." <laughs> uh, so after a while, yeah, you do get the "I'm too old for this shit." Yeah, retire and get myself a boat. Uh, yeah, and, and actually, this is this is something which is also very very important to think about: is that Twitter makes hu- makes things seem like they're huge waves. If you try and ride every single one of those waves, you it will destroy you. It will kill you. Because you cannot go 100% on everything. You can't. Yeah. You will burn out. Um, it's not possible. And the, this, this, the Twitter veneer, which says everyone is talking about it constantly, all the time, no, they are not. You just see a lot of tweets about it. And you might have some people who are very, very vocal about a certain thing. And that's fine. It is absolutely fine to have a particular stance which you know you are going to fight for constantly, um, but trying to cover all of it, trying to be that perfect human, that paragon that that Twitter seems to expect and you know say that people are meant to be, is literally impossible, um, and it's why just logging out of Twitter every now and again or, or seeing a wave and going you know what, I'm not getting on that wave <laughs> is okay like, going to go past me, I'm going to stay on the beach you know? Yeah, and, and actually that is something that, you know, I've had to learn is that I did I did get caught up in waves um, and it, it, as part of that I might have gotten caught up in things that I didn't have the full information for when I was younger and I regret that now um, so it is really really important <laughs> to actually take a step back. Um, and I think yeah. you can do I think you can do that more the older you get. Yes. So um we've tried to wrap this up like three times now, but yeah. final final attempt at a wrap up. <laughs> um, basically gatekeeping. Gatekeeping in and of itself is not really a positive thing. And um, we've canvassed it quite thoroughly, but some of our arguments are circular and they must by necessity remain so simply because this is something that is going to change and evolve and we might have a different opinion in two years time so um what do you guys think do you have an opinion at all (laughs) are you not bothered do you just care whether you get a good piece of literature in your hand um let us know 
yeah please remember you can get in touch with us via our facebook our tumblr or our twitter both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages we really do love to hear from you um and as we said before we love to hear different perspectives so please do get in touch before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week so let's go for something a little bit lighter now um jules i believe that you've got a recommendation for us yes um First of all, this is, uh, I wouldn't say it's a great work of art. Uh, this is a very silly film. It came out fairly recently. It's called Freaky. It is a spoof on the entire slasher movie genre. Mm -hmm. I'm not, generally speaking, a slasher movie fan because the horror that works for me is usually very character-driven and tends to be slow and creeping, whereas slasher movies are all about blood and guts. Mm. Having said that, this starts in classic slasher movie fa uh, fashion and then the serial killer attempts to kill a new victim who happens to be, she's basically the school mascot for their, for their sports team. Right. And she sat there wearing this ridiculous costume because her parents have forgotten to pick her up and he attempts to kill her with a knife that he's stolen from some other place. It's a mystical knife. Mm -hmm. There is a brief moment and they body swap and it's Freaky Friday, but the girl has swapped with a serial killer <laughs> and it's absolutely hilarious. It is really, really funny. It turns a lot of the tropes on its head. Suddenly the dangerous serial killer is this cute looking 16 year old mm -hmm. living her life. And the 16 year old who's always been a bit anxious and not very popular and can't tell the boy she likes she likes him is stuck in the body of this 40 something year old man yeah who is known to be a serial killer I've, I've seen the trailers and honestly it just looks hilarious um if you want a light sort of hour and 40 minute film it is very very funny and there's there's even a an, an amusing sort of she manages to talk to the boy she likes and while she's in the wrong body kind of thing mm. um i don't want to go into too much detail but it's that there is a, a very hilarious moment with that as well. So there you go. Something much lighter to end the episode on. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.